0: You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. Good morning. Uh, my name is Nate. Um, I'm one of the elders here at Gateway. I'm really excited to uh, get to share this part of worship with you, which is the message uh, from the Word. It's Advent season. Um, this is a season um, that started two weeks ago. Um, It's a a season in the Christian church where, in the context, Advent means waiting for the coming of Jesus, Um, and traditionally, the church has talked about three comings of Jesus, Uh, him coming to earth, which is what we usually think of with Christmas, of baby Jesus, Um, but also the coming to uh, believers, um, of us believing in him and repenting. And then the third way is how Jesus is coming back, and we believe and hope and pray for that. Today is the third Sunday Advent. It's called Gaudette Sunday, the Sunday of joy um, or rejoicing. Um, Two weeks ago, Kyle talked about the necessity of watchfulness, and Phil gave us a message centering on John the Baptist's proclamation uh, of Jesus. So naturally, on this Sunday of joy, going to get a warm, fuzzy, Chris Kingle-Mart-type message of rejoicing. Um, but really, we're going to go the opposite way. This is a really hard message for me. Um, I deal with doubt quite a bit. Um, so I was really drawn to this uh, when Kyle kind of laid out some Sundays we could take. I went right for it. Um, <clears throat> passage read by Daniel. Um, it's really connected with me throughout the years um, because you have this like really faithful guy having a lack of faith. Um, so personally, like, just so you know, I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you. Because I can see amazing things. I have seen amazing things. I've been mean, witness to God's faithfulness over and over. But then the minute something goes to where I don't think it should, I, I can despair. Um, in college, at the, my friends, we at a Christian school, so we do like names from Christian books. I had a nickname called Puddle From uh, Chronicles of Narnia, if you've read those, you know he's a a, a character who sees the glass as pretty much empty, not half full. Um, So that was pretty apt. So in this passage, uh, I'm going to (laughs) say, Kate likes that. Oh, uh, she laughs louder, so thank you, Kate. So in the context, so John the Baptist was, was leading the way for the coming of Jesus, uh had been living in the desert, uh, eating bugs and whatnot. And right now he is in prison in, in Herod's castle or mansion or whatever he's living in. And this is John who's baptized countless people, including Jesus himself, but now was locked away. And it's really easy for us, you know, where we're at now, over 2,000 years, separate from The life of Jesus now to see well, it's really easy to you should have faith. You know, don't despair in prison. Saint Paul didn't despair, but you know, John grew up in the context of Judaism and knew the Old Testament and knew all these prophecies that were to come. And there was a pretty confident view in the world uh, for Jews there that the Messiah, who was foretold, what what that Messiah would look like. It was more of a conquering hero someone who would come and literally break the chains of oppression off the Jews. Jesus had proclaimed, the, or excuse me, John had proclaimed this coming of this Messiah. He baptized him. And so for John's story here, his, his birth was actually prophetic. It was foretold. Um, it, was, it was an incredible story in itself. His father lost the ability to speak because he didn't really believe that a son was coming for him. Um, but he was born, and then he goes to the desert. He's eating bugs and eating honey. He's never lived in luxury. He spends his days calling out the nation of Israel for their sins and then baptizing those who repent into a renewal movement that leads to the reunification of heaven and earth. What he sees is that new Eden coming back. And so he calls out, Behold the Lamb of God. So the next step is obviously... Chains are breaking, freedom is coming, rights are made wrong. The new kingdom surely has come. And he's suffered greatly living in the desert. It's not a great thing. And the nation of Israel has suffered greatly. They've been exiled multiple times. And they're living in what they once called the land of milk and honey. But it's now under the iron fist of Rome. So he sees Jesus. It's now time for him to make all these wrongs right. The innocent should prevail, not the evil. Yet, here he is, rotting in jail. And maybe his mind, something was off. Doubt sets in. So I want to focus a lot on this word doubt. Um, And and I want to walk through what doubt can look like in different ways. Um, it's often looked at as something a Christian should never, ever dabble in. Um, To doubt Almighty God is to prove that you don't really believe in God's promises or his sovereignty or whatever words you want to use. If you type in Christian quotes in Google about doubt, the top ones are always like, "Doubting doubting is telling God that you don't want the life he's promised you. One said, genuine faith in Christ has zero doubt. And the other one says, God's not limited by what's happening around you. He's only limited what's happening in you. Don't let doubt or fear hold you back from all he has for you. That one would take another sermon to unpack. But the point of it is, it's just saying, like, flee from all doubt. Like, get what you deserve by believing. But I like these other three quotes that I dug up by three saints that I believe love the Lord, and a few of them are even home with him now. Uh, First one is from Eugene Peterson. He says, Belief in God does not exempt us from feelings of abandonment by God. Praising God does not inoculate us from doubts about God. The next one is C.S. Lewis. I think the trouble with me is a lack of faith. Often when I pray, I wonder, am I not posting letters to a non existent address? And then lastly is Brennan Manning. He says, When I get honest, I admit that I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I'm trusting, I'm suspicious. I'm honest, and yet I still play games. Aristotle said, I'm a rational animal. I say, I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. (laughs) That one hit home. So what I love about those three quotes, as opposed to these feel-good self-help, it it doesn't make me, when I doubt, it doesn't make me feel further away from God. When I have doubt, I know that I'm not alone in my failings, that my brothers and my sisters throughout history Have all struggled with doubt. And it makes me see how wonderful our Lord is for picking up his robes and running towards us when we do start that journey back. And as Phil said last week, like things feel uncomfortable, like maybe God's refining us. Refining is never comfortable, refining metal is a violent thing. Refining anything is shaping and getting rid of what is not needed. And so perhaps on this joyful Sunday, we can hear and kind of enter in with what John the Baptist has asked. Is he the one? Can we rest in belief and knowledge that Christ has won the battle, but also acknowledge that we have questions? Is he the one? Is this what's going on? what's supposed to happen? And what I really want you to hear today is that doubt does not have to be a rejection of truth. There's some examples from the Old Testament and the New that I want to talk about that deals with that stark contrast between doubt and rejection. First, rejection we see in Exodus 33. God tells the Israelites, go to the promised land, but he would not be coming with them because they were stiff-necked people. They were rejecting God's plan for them. They were rejecting his grace for them. And in the same vein, years later, Stephen, our first martyr, calls out to the Jews, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like our ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And in contrast, you look at the patri- one of the patriarchs of the Jewish faith, Jacob, he struggled and wrestled with God. He was renamed Israel because of that, one who struggles and strives with God. John was living into his namesake as an Israelite, questioning, fighting against what he thinks is wrong or up upsetting him, but not rejecting the Holy Spirit. One who wrestles with God. God is with us. There's a difference between one who struggles with how they're seeing and hearing and dealing with God and one who's resisting the Spirit and rejects what God wants and promotes what they want. So I believe John was obviously not rejecting the one he called the Lamb of God or his plan, but he was very human and struggling with what was being played out. So he sends disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the one who's to come, or should we look for another? It's, I mean, it's a very human question. Um, How often have you asked the same question? Have I asked that same question? Is this all worth it? God, where are you? I ask these kind of questions when I watch the news and there's another mass shooting. When innocents are slaughtered in war. When my Freedom for Youth kids get shot and killed. When I get a call on a Sunday about one of my best friends. Sin entered this world many, many years ago. And when it did, a fissure was created a fissure that made it natural for us to now doubt our Creator because we no longer walk in the cool of the day with him. We now live in a broken communion with him. So John is right there with us. He's looking for rest. He's looking for Jesus to bring Eden back. But John has that certain vision for Jesus' life that might be a little bit off. So John's in doubt. But we move on in the passage to Jesus' answer. Excuse me. So he didn't answer this doubt, this questioning of him, with any wrath. He wasn't offended by John asking for reassurance. Instead, he drew John and John's disciples back to the prophecies that they knew by heart. I'll read it again. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It's really fascinating. I found this book in my library. I don't know where I got it, but it's a Jewish commentary on the New Testament. So, written by by Jews who are, are believing in Christ. And they jump into this, his his answer, Um, not only did Jesus not chide John for the lack of faith, but stuck to his method of not announcing himself, but reassuring at the same time, because all the examples that Jesus gives are connected back to Isaiah prophecies. And so I think that's really beautiful, to where, like, maybe to the uh, untrained eye, it's like, that's a really annoying answer, Jesus. Like, you're not answering him at all. But to John, that would have been, Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you are, because you've fulfilled prophecy. So he was not ready to announce himself, but he wouldn't let John sit in his doubt any longer. But, going to the last line to John, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The commentary says, straight from Malachi, it's that quote, Jesus is indeed the one, and let, yet lets John know gently, but you will not be freed from prison. The Son of God did not come to earth in human form to make us rich, to cure our physical bodies, to keep you from all earthly harm, to make sure you're pain-free, spiritually, emotionally, physically. He did not come to give political power to us Jesus came in a most humiliating way. He was born in a dirty old barn, in a town that wasn't his home, in a trough that held feed for sheep and bovines. He grew up in a town that was infamous for not having anything good come from it. He spent the last few years of his short life on the road with 12 men, 12 disciples, who proved themselves to be children often with their bickering about Prominence in his kingdom, they thought was here in their light. On a good night, he slept out. He slept in someone's home that they they offered to him. But most of the time, they slept outside on the road. And then he was tried in the most kangaroo of kangaroo courts that ended up letting a murderer go and sentencing him not only to the worst death that Rome. Had invented, but torture and ridicule beforehand that his friends and family had to witness. And so nowhere in the life of Jesus do I see a promise of life without pain and suffering. He is our example. God cares immensely to what happens to you now. Don't hear that I'm preaching an escapism gospel, one of like, let the world burn and let's get to heaven. Not at all. God is heartbroken by every instance of evil on his creation. But he's not a separate and aloof God that leaves us here either. His way is about counting all as loss and Christ as gain. We can desire comfort and not want to suffer, obviously, um, we're not in the vein of some cults where we, we want the suffering, we want pain, we, we deserve bad things. No, we, we, you can want comfort and alleviation of suffering. But it can't be our end goal. Christ is our end goal. Following his way is our way. And this way is the way of death, death that leads to life. John truly was preparing the way of Jesus as he was held without trial because he called out a puppet king for marrying his brother's wife and then sat in a horrible prison cell eventually killed because the same king lusted after his wife's daughter and she asked for him to be killed. John was showing a snapshot of what to come What was to come for Jesus here on earth? He truly was showing the way Christ would have to take. He who must live, he who would live, must die. The first must be last. We lose our life but to gain it. But what if we don't want this way of Jesus? What if, like the rich young ruler, we can't bear to part with our happiness now? And that's the question that each and every human in the history, past, present, and future has to come to. Does your doubt sway you away or back into his arms? John prepared this way for Jesus, the way of physical death, but the way of true life. Jesus' last um, response as the disciples went back to John to give him that message. He began to speak to the crowds concerning John now. He said, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What did you go out to see then? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, more than a prophet, even. This is of whom it is written Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Who will prepare your way before you? Truly, I say to you, those among, born among women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Again, no chiding for his doubt. In fact, Jesus turns to the people and tells them exactly what the God of the universe thinks of this man. This man who had just doubted that Jesus was for sure the one who was to come. John's question didn't knock him down in God's eyes. God handled his doubt and answered his question. Here's where we want to wrap this. Jesus was okay with John's doubt. Are we okay with John's doubt? Are you okay with your doubt, with others' doubt? Jesus can and will handle your doubt. When we say, are you the one to come? Is he the Christ? Jesus has answered those doubts. He himself even sweated blood and asked for the cup to pass. He knows the struggle that you are struggling. That's why he takes it and he makes it his own. I love this quote by Lewis again. He says, if we have the will to walk, then God is indeed pleased with our stumbles. Christ stumbled himself down the Via Della Rosa with his own instrument of death on his back. He did that to handle your doubt. He was nailed to and raised upon that cross to answer your struggles and questions. He died and was dead for three days. And he can be gentle with us and bless us when we ask, are you the one who's to come? Because three days later, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. This Sunday of joy is indeed a time to remember the comings of Christ, of his birth, of him drawing and coming to each and every one of us, and of his promised return to indeed make all things new, to indeed take the pains and the hurts and the sufferings and the doubts and wash them away. As we come to the table today, this is what we remember. Jesus has called out to all of you. He's knocking on the door. He's inviting you into the way of death that leads to eternal life. So that in the midst of whatever sufferings we're going through, are going through, have gone through, will go through, we can join St. Paul in saying, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Jesus is truly why we can rejoice during this Advent season. Is truly why we can enter into doubt and ask, Are you the one? And he can answer, Yes. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.